ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Brooding, creeping, foreboding sounds that tell us that this is the beginning of the minefield. Welcome to it. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on the show. And occasionally we do something that's nothing like that and we just have some fun. That's probably more describing next week, which brings me to the housekeeping, uh, Scott, which we keep forgetting to do. So I think we should do it up front before we have a chance to forget. Should we remind our audience about next week's show? Yeah, well, next week requires a little bit of homework, but I guarantee it'll be the easiest homework we will have ever set for listeners. I think the the one that was next in running was getting people to listen to the set list that Queen performed at Live Aid in 1985. I mean, that's not yeah. homework. That's that was just 20, pure unadulterated. minutes of, yeah. Of unadulterated joy. Should I we tell them the, about the one you were going to get them to do? No, no. Let's let's leave that in our pocket just in case we <laughs> okay. do want to inflict it <laughs> might un- at a later that. stage. But look, next week we're venturing on an audio show. We're venturing into the visual arts. So we're going to suggest that you spend a little bit of time. I would recommend just five minutes. Find the biggest screen that you can, maybe sort of a large smartphone, but if you can manage to bring it up on a laptop or even an iPad or something like that, or better yet, if you have a book of art, of modern art, or 19th century art at home. Try to find it. Try to find an actual physical reproduction of it. We're going to request that you spend a little bit of time lingering in the presence of Francisco de Goya's 1823 masterpiece, Saturn Eating His Son. Waleed, you've seen it in person. I have, yes. I've not. I know Goya's work pretty well. I know the painting pretty well. It's going to be a wild discussion next week. Yeah. I don't um, know if and, it'll match the wildness of the painting. But yeah. Wildness. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe wildness isn't the right word. And no, it's, it's, it's fine it, for you to yeah. say you're familiar with Goya's work. I'm not sure that helps you in this case. I think it does. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's not yeah, do the show yeah. now. No, no, but no, I, let's not. I, I'm really looking forward to it. So this is for the Minefield Not Quite a Book Club or whatever it's called. And it's very simple homework. You could do it in five seconds. I would recommend Scott's advice of looking mm. at it for a bit longer. Just linger. Because just, things just come linger. out like it's, it's yeah, the use mm. of the light and the color and the, there's certain, anyway, like I said mm. before, let's not do it this week. That's next week on The Minefield. Your homework is set uh, and make sure you join us then. Should we do this week now? Yeah, well, I was about to say, speaking of looking into the darkness. All uh, um, right. <laughs> I mean, that's not exactly the best segue into referendum politics, but that seems to be kind of precisely where we are left at the moment. This has been an important week, I think, in Australia's referendum year. Uh, many voters, millions in fact, would have received in their letterboxes uh, a little wad of grayish, purplish paper uh, laying out the yes and the no cases for the upcoming referendum. We now have a further development, Willie, that this week the Prime Minister announced in Adelaide that not only do we have the yes and no cases in our hot little hands, but we also now have a date. So uh, apparently it's going to be October the 14th. Australians will be showing up at their voting booths. They'll be casting their vote. But even there, I think we've been reminded, haven't we, over the last week and a bit, Willie, that referendum politics and the kind of public deliberation that referenda unleash aren't exactly the best of us. They tend to veer into the petty, into the absolute, into the totalizing. They tend to lead to relatively small points of difference being blown up into potentially huge claims about unfairness. And I I mean, there have been some pretty horrible things that have been said recently. I don't know if we're going to get into it in the show or not. But one of the strangest, I think, parts of a debate that I didn't imagine how it could go stranger was over the ways in which voters are allowed to register their assent or dissent to the proposed question. Do you want to talk about this, Willie? (laughs) Uh, well, I, I wasn't anticipating we would, <laughs> but sure. I mean, what do you want to say about it? So the AEC has given its voting guidelines, as it always does. You'll be presented with a little a little ballot, and in that ballot will be the proposed question to which we either need to vote, give our assent, or register our dissent. 
there are two mechanisms that are given to us. There's a little empty box and we can... Essentially, the guidelines are you need to give an unambiguous signal of your intention. So if you think that this proposal should be adopted, the clear advice is vote yes. If you think it should be rejected, the clear advice is vote no. As in write the words. As in write the words, yes. In other words, what is not allowed, what can't really be countenanced, is ambiguity concerning the voters' intention. What are they meaning to signal here? So under then the frequently asked questions, can you write Y or N? Well, discouraged, but as long as it gives a clear signal, okay. Can you give a tick for approval? Well, again, it's discouraged, and it's not exactly onerous to write three letters, yes, or two letters, no. But a tick, as long as it's an unambiguous signal of affirmation, of assent, yes, the proposition should be adopted, then it can be interpreted as such. Can one use an X or a cross to signal one's dissent? Well, this is what the AEC said. The issue with the cross is that on many forums, people in Australia use in daily life and in some other languages, a cross represents a checkmark indicating yes. It's therefore open to interpretation as to whether the cross denotes approval or disapproval. A clear tick can be interpreted as denoting approval for the proposal. And this has then led to a series of charges on the part of some in the no camp that this is a matter of gerrymandering. It's skewing the rules to favor those who want to vote yes by making it easier, relatively easier to vote yes than to vote no, because you not only have the option of writing yes, but you also have the option of a tick. In other words, this is yet a further indication that the game is rigged, that the votes are stacked, that the outcome is predetermined. I found that... There's a certain American overtone to that. Isn't there? But... Was any of this I, necessary? I, I don't just find understand. it sad, Walid. I just find it sad on, on just about every level. But why, why did we bother getting here? Is there a good reason? Because when you go to an election normally, there's a very clear prescription on how you are to fill it in. It's actually more complicated than it could possibly be in this case. Absolutely right. So why don't they just prescribe something? Mm. Would that be... Have I, have I missed a whole dimension to this... Well, no, I, I mean, the AEC has prescribed something. They've prescribed right yes or no. Okay, so shouldn't that be the end of it? But then there's a certain degree of leeway that's given because what the AEC is really looking for, what those who are counting the votes are really looking for, is a clear, unambiguous signal of one's intention. So there's also the desire not to penalize voters who might have, I don't know, in a fit of inattention or in a fit of pique or whatever it is, have given their assent or their disagreement in another way. Right. So they're concerned the about, for example... I don't know, people in remote communities not reading the instructions and... Yeah. Right, okay. But the crucial thing is the lack of ambiguity with the way that you signal your intention. And I think the fact that that can then be used, the desire to rule out ambiguity, the fact that that can be used as a way of casting a pole or throwing doubt on the process as a whole, you see it's rigged. Given the fact that the AEC is nonpartisan, it's a an entirely independent organization, again... I just found the extent to which a fairly basic aspect of a referendum argument can be turned into, you see, the dice are loaded. The game is rigged. Mm. There's something about that that I think just further takes us into unsavory territory. Here's my question. Anyone who is familiar with the ABC, its editorial restrictions, um, the particular obligations that we have during any kind of public vote knows that we're not in the business of, and we have no interest in campaigning one side or the other. What I do have a great interest in, and I know you're with me on this, Walid, is the health and well-being of an overall political community. There are certain dynamics that referenda unleash in public debate. And regardless of the outcome, my concern is that there is a kind of dynamic that is bound up with the very logic of a referendum that means that it can't do anything other than draw out, I think, some of the worst inclinations within democratic politics, some of the worst features or aspects or tendencies within public debate. So what I'm hoping we can do in the next however much time we now have is to try to understand what is it about the logic of referenda 
that's a bit dangerous, perhaps in general, but certainly in time like ours. Can I ask you? Yeah. Are you here including plebiscitary politics in the same category, or are you speaking very specifically about referenda? Plebiscitary politics in general, as opposed to democratic politics. So anytime you go to the public and say, here is a question, please answer yes, no on a specific matter. Exactly right. As opposed to, please vote for the parliament you want, who will then negotiate and argue about the implementation of certain policy. Knowing that if you don't get your side up this particular time, then three, four, five years hence, another turn is going to come. And that you'll be institutionally represented, even if in minority. Even if you lose. That's right. Right. Whereas referenda and plebiscitary politics, they render an absolute judgment. Yes wins, no wins, and that's the end of the matter. There's no further representation that happens on the losing side. Precisely right. Now, I should say, I think there's an important qualification here. Let's just say, going back to the show we did last week, let's say that a future government decided that the case for a domestic nuclear power program is such that the people need to be consulted directly about it. Mm -hmm. And so they held a plebiscite into the future of Australia's nuclear energy profile. Would you have an issue with that kind of plebiscite that would just seek to overcome the existing bans that there are in at both federal and state level? Would Sorry, and the plebiscite with? becomes binding? Uh, the plebiscite, well, no. Or is it just merely a form of consultation? Yeah, it's indicative. Uh, would I have a problem with that? Probably not. I think there's hmm. there's a danger in it. Because, well, it's the same danger that occurs whenever you raise this method of resolving an issue. That's right. And that is that your response will be, I mean, in in the particular case you've raised, who exactly counts as being consulted? Who are the people? You mean the whole country? Do you mean a particular area and so on and so forth? And sometimes what government needs to be empowered to do is to make decisions that sit outside the public judgment on an individual case. And then be judged as a government in toto. Yes. I do think there are certain cases that sit outside that, and the referendum that we are about to embark upon has to be one of those for two very good reasons. Although maybe Mm. I'm jumping ahead because you were about to play with your example. Do you want to do that first? Well, I was just going to say, here's the difference, I think. Between and I'm really eager to see where you're where you're going, but I'll just sort of, yeah, again, I'll just stitch together the circle. I think if it's a particular matter of policy, and we want to consult the public on a matter that may well spill over party political lines. In other words, mm-hmm. they may well be conservatives who have a deep, long-standing aversion to nuclear power. They may well be progressive green, uh, progressive greens. They may well be progressive. Uh, labor voters who are beginning to warm to the idea that we should have a nuclear power program. I think something like an indicative plebiscite would be a nice way of giving a clear signal to parties that this may well be something that the nation is ready for, that voters might be willing to countenance. There's a difference, however. Yeah, there is a different way of picking that up, though. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Yeah. I don't think that particular type of plebiscite has some of the moral and political issues that are involved, say, in a plebiscite concerning same-sex marriage. Right. Because in that particular case, it is a group of people whose rights and inclusion within certain institutions is being debated, which means a group of people are then subject to public scrutiny and public deliberation, which means a group of people, the question about whether they should be accorded a degree of agency within their ability to access certain institutions that are available to other citizens, that very agency is what is under discussion, which means the very topic of agency is then being mediated and discussed through a process that can't help but reduce them to an object of other people's deliberations. But that's only one way to frame that. Yes, it is, but that's precisely what we saw in 2017. Well, but there's another way of looking at what happened in 2017, which is actually that through a process of public assent, a result was delivered that is beyond contestation. Yes, that's right. And that had it been resolved democratically, the contest doesn't go away. Mm. It becomes reduced to a partisan contest. So 
I think with a case like that, and I, the argument, as you put it, I've heard a lot, I mean, it's a fairly common argument. It kind of comes down to how you choose to see it and in what point of time you choose to see it. So I think the perspective people might have had when that plebiscite was happening and the campaigning was happening could well turn out to be different to the perspective they take five years later, 10 years That's later. That's right. Yes, of course. When the result is already done and we know but how But do you remember how out. bruising it was in the moment? Yeah. Do you I, remember the yeah, warnings of politicians delivered at the time? Sure, yeah. but I don't know. The question becomes, what's the import of that? Are we then saying that that which is bruising is unconscionable and we should never embark upon a bruising process where a less bruising process would occur? Is that the principle we're arguing for? Or are we arguing for a position that says, well, democratic life is bruising in some cases more than others. However, if you undergo a more bruising process to reach a more durable outcome, that's worthwhile. So I'm not prescribing a view on Mm. that, by the way. I mean, people will draw their own conclusions on it. I'm just saying that these things become ways of like come down to to what you choose to emphasize, what you choose to see, perhaps what you regard as more important. I, I will say this. We're talking in the context of a referendum forthcoming on the voice to parliament. Mm. And I don't think, I'm not sure whether you're trying to do this or not, but I don't think parallels with the same-sex marriage plebiscite work. Don't you? No. Why? Well, for two reasons. One is, and perhaps most importantly, this is what an extensive process of consultation with Indigenous Australia asked for. That's right. So you can't say we want a constitutional amendment And then not go to a referendum. And then complain when there's a referendum about it. Mm, That's right. You've asked for a referendum. You can say, this is uncomfortable. It's terrible the way the campaign's been run. Why can't we do referenda very well? You can have all those arguments, but I don't know that you can complain about the fact of a referendum. Mm, Agreed. I, I don't find it convincing in that context to construct it as, why is the majority getting to vote on the rights of a minority? I just don't think, which is the way, for example, you describe the same-sex marriage plebiscite. I I just don't think the parallels work for that reason. The Mm. other thing is this is not a vote about rights in the same way. So Yes, I agree. The same-sex marriage plebiscite was really about a right exists in relation to marriage. Do you want to extend that right so that it's blind as to gender, right? So that really was about rights. If your starting point is one of identity, right, so that, marriage is extended to people with the identity of heterosexuality, but not the people of homosexuality. And therefore, I mean, that's one way of framing it. That's probably the way that our society tends to frame it. And so Mm. it becomes, in the public imagination, a question of rights. This isn't that. This is about the creation of an institution that is actually particular. And this, this is kind of the argument that some on the no side are making, right? That what this is doing is actually, it's not so much about according rights to a minority so that they would be equal with a majority. It's about according a special right or a special institution. Mm. Now, I know there are arguments against that to do with substantive equality as opposed to formal equality, disadvantage that has existed generationally and so on, the continuing legacies of colonisation, et cetera. That becomes the argument we end up having. But, but in a formal sense, it's, it's just not the same thing. If, if you want to say referendum politics are lamentable, I'm with you on that. If mm. you want to say they should be avoided... Uh, unless absolutely necessary, I'm with you on that. That they're a bad way of resolving democratic contestation, I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. But the whole point of the voice referendum and the whole point that the Uluru Statement is making with regards to the voice is that this is meant to sit outside democracy. Yes. It's not meant to be a democratic process in the sense that you mean it, right? In the sort oh, hang of on. It's not, meant to set, it's not meant to sit outside democracy. It's meant to sit outside the party political process. I think there's some, that's kind of fundamentally. Well, no, I think in the end it sits outside democracy, right? Except to the extent that you could undo it with a referendum. Mm. Mm. But it sits outside democracy in the way that the High Court sits outside democracy. Right? The, yes, high, the okay. high Court is not subject to popular vote or um, to some extent even popular sentiment. I mean, there are always, you know, limits to these things. If, if the High Court became so unpopular that it was just seen as unconscionably corrupt, then there'd probably be a point at which public sentiment takes over and some revolution happens or something like that. But the whole point of making it constitutional is to take it outside the political cycle. And I think for our purposes in this discussion, that's outside the democratic cycle, because what you mean by that is that the the parliamentary makeup shouldn't affect 
the ongoing existence and operation of okay. the voice. Okay, good. Sure. So we're agreed on that? Yes, we are. What's the point about complaining about referendum politics? So the observations you make about referendum politics, with which I tend to agree, are all well and good. But mm. how do you wish to apply them here? Mm. Let me just push back on one particular point sure. about the, say, correlation or lack of correlation between the same-sex marriage plebiscite and this year's referendum. You're absolutely right that the two of them cannot be compared in certain very, very important ways. And I think you're also right that the reason for the referendum is something that comes out of a constitutional uh, dialogue process that actually requested a change to the Constitution and therefore that must marry itself to bind itself to the very process by which that constitutional amendation can come about. You're absolutely right. Here's where I think there is a connection between the two that is, again, subtle, but I think it's subtly important to try to tease out. When a people have undertaken a process by which they are seeking to overcome what the Uluru Statement from the Heart called the torment of our powerlessness, in other words, to achieve a degree of agency within decisions that are important, uh, decisions that have direct consequences for local regional communities. And that process by which a degree of powerlessness is meant to be overcome has the effect then of reducing those who are desiring to overcome the condition of political powerlessness or, say, political caprice, the fact that the First Nations organizations, congresses, commissions have been formed, multiple since 1976, and then dissolved or defunded or, yeah. or delegislated or otherwise abolished. And turned into a party political thing. Yeah. And turned into a party political football. But when the means, the mechanism by which a degree of powerlessness is meant to be overcome or rectified, when that very process is mediated by the reduction of a group of people into objects, into topics of debate, there's this phrase from W.E.B. Du Bois's kind of uh, haunting volume, The Souls of Black Folk, where he says there are few more dehumanizing positions in which one can find oneself than to be regarded by the public as a problem that needs to be solved. How does it feel? He has a character in his book ask him. How does it feel to be a problem? And I think there's something about the reduction of a person or of a group to a problem that needs to be solved, to a topic that needs to be debated, to a group over which another group of people need to deliberate. There's something about that. <sighs> That is one way of constructing this. But I think it's unavoidable, isn't well, it? Well, it, it's unavoidably part of the equation. I don't know that it's unavoidably the only description you can give of it. Okay, okay, okay. Because another way of looking at it is, well, this is about the establishment of an institution. Mm. And so the institution becomes what's debated, not necessarily the people. If, if that's what was going on, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Agreed. So if you want to say there are lamentable aspects, even unconscionable aspects, to the way in which the debate has proceeded, sure. But that's different from saying the very fact of a referendum is the source of that unconscionability. So I think, Waleed, one of the things that was incredibly important, we discussed this very briefly uh, at the start of the year, one of the things that was surprisingly important, I think, about the 1967 referendum is that there was not a single parliamentarian that opposed it. And therefore, there was no need for a no case. There was only a yes sure. case. It was, was also presented. a very different referendum. It was a very different referendum. Of course there was. Like but in this substance, is the same... not in, not, I don't mean in politics, yeah. I mean in substance. Yeah. I know, but this is the same reason why the matter of Brown v. Board of Education in the United States, it was imperative, it was imperative that the judges be unanimous in that particular decision about the unconstitutionality of the segregation okay. of, of, so what of do public want, schools. So what do you want here? You want the ability to establish an institution that's been asked for without any contest? I think, no, no, of, of course not. But I think when it is the social, the political, the historical status of a people that is under question, and unfortunately that is precisely what's going on in this particular referendum. And when the mechanism that is being used cannot help but be a zero-sum process, they're either winners or they're losers. 
And when that then has the effect of sharpening the terms of the debate, but also the stakes of the debate. So, for instance, let's just say that someone is broadly in favor of the idea of the voice, but is worried that, okay, even though the program is that the voice will lead to treaty and the treaty will lead to truth-telling, that this is the beginning of a process, I worry that it's going to end up being used as political window dressing, that it's going to become a form of self-congratulation and political uh, legacy-making, and therefore I've got my suspicions. In other words, I'm broadly yes, but yes, but. But I lean no because of my doubts. Yes, or or someone who says no, although I can kind of see where, or no, but I don't really want to be associated with the people, the other people who are voting no. The nature of the deliberation and the fact of the topic, the subject that is being deliberated, you put the zero-sum game together with the fact that it's a group of people that effectively are being deliberated over, that are being turned into topics that need to be debated or problems that need to be solved. You put those two things together and it creates, I think, an almost unique and uniquely toxic situation in which the very mechanisms of deliberation by which people of good conscience can come to an informed, carefully worked out, responsible decision are being corroded by the very fact of the zero-sum nature of the game. Okay, so I I hear this argument. What are the implications of it? Are you saying it was wrong to ask for a voice to be enshrined in the Constitution? Does it take you in the direction of, say, the Lydia Thorpe argument, which is the voice is absolutely the wrong thing to do, what should be pursued is treaty? Treaty treaty comes first and then, yeah. Or does this take you in the direction of, say, the opposition, which is saying, well, why don't we just legislate this? And then Legislate regional voices. And, yeah, you know, and then, and then confer. Whatever. Yeah. So in other words, your observation could go in a million different directions. The problem I have in extending it is I keep coming back to this was the result of a process in which this was the very thing that was requested. And it can't have been requested naively. Hmm. I, I think the people involved were too intelligent for that. Of course, of course. However, they're not the only actors involved in this. And I think one of the other things that referendum politics does is even those people who are exhausted by the process, even those people who are worried about the debate and its outcome, even those, and let's just put the best possible spin, even those who really are concerned about the effect that this might have on the Constitution, about the effect that this might have on, on certain political settlements, whether this is going to translate into meaningful outcomes for regional communities. All of it, yes. All of it. The debate itself becomes so totalizing so all consuming in the way that it, yes, no. in the way that it racks people up into camps and leaves out the possibility and i think in many respects the necessity that democratic politics can accommodate for namely principled dissent but post hoc constructive compromise um well yeah i'm not mm. Let's get to it. In other words, because I, yeah, I, yeah. I just think we're going to go around in circles and there's bits we could tease out, but ultimately it's just going to be variations on a theme. So I think we need someone to rescue us. And our guest is Celeste Little. She's an Arunda woman, uh, a social commentator, a freelance writer, an activist. She's also, Waleed, funny enough, the only guest we've ever had on this show that you and I have never spoken to. That's because <laughs> she was a guest when we had guest hosts. Celeste, yes, thank you that, so much. It's not that she came in and we just refused to talk to her. No, exactly right. <laughs> Celeste, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. What would you like to say? Uh, where do you start? Yeah. Um, I, I think I do need to pick up um, one of the points that you were both talking about with regards to the making of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a problem and where the debate's sitting and how that's wearing, because I am seeing a lot of really exhausted Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people right now when it comes to the discussion on The Voice, just, yeah, feeling like this isn't a referendum on a voice being installed in the constitution at all, but rather whether we're worthy people in the Mm. eyes of the rest of Australia. Um, So, yeah, that's having a real impact. I've noticed that there's even helplines that have been installed in news feeds today to assist Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who are having trouble with this discussion that's going on around us um, about whether we're worthy people. If anything... The state of play right now feels like it's been really taken away from discussions on a voice. Um, It seems to be a debate on our worth. 
Why does it feel that way? Look, if you if you look at the, some of the discussions that have been going on, so I do come at this from an undecided position. And I'm going to state that up front. Um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why is because I do have questions about the process. I do have questions about ideas of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community consensus on whether the voice is the right way forward. If I could frame what I've seen from both the yes camp, um, but also the no camp, it seems that a lot of the more involved um, discerning conversations that are happening in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community about, about whether we want a voice, how we want a voice, how it should be constructed, what should be the order of business, um, all of those sorts of things are being wallpapered over for, for quite simplistic ideas about what yes looks like and what no looks like. So from the yes camp, we hear a lot about how this voice is going to be democratically selected. It's going to be um, representative of gender balance and age balance, remote communities as part of the makeup of it. Um, but the reality is that's not what we're being asked at the referendum. We are being asked a yes or no question about whether there should be a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice that can be installed in the constitution and then make representations. Um, the actual constitutional amendment still gives the government the power to mm. decide the structure of that voice. Um, really all of these things that they're promising us are legislative changes. So that's not what's going to referendum. And what we know about changing governments is that what one government legislates one day, the next government can come in and completely dash. They could totally change the structure of the voice in the next term of government if we have a change of government, um, regardless of what sort of sentiments have gone into it. But not its existence, which not, is the crucial thing that's being asked for in the Uluru Statement. Right? Not its existence, but if, say, the legislation goes through and they do decide on a democratic structure, which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people vote for, and which is broadly representative of this gender community um, age balance that they're talking about, that could be done tomorrow with a change of government, that all they need to do is decide, no, this is how we're going to proceed with the structure of the voice, get that legislation over the line, and we could be left with them deciding one person is going to be the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, which is going to make representations. Um, so, yeah, that's the yes side. I feel like there's a lot of promises, but there's not a lot of truth to what is actually on the table and how simple and conservative it is by design. It was made that way to give it um, the highest chance of being voted up. But the no side, on the other hand, um, or the mainstream no side, has been saying all sorts of stuff like this referendum will give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more rights over other Australians, that it'll divide the country by race. Um, there's this real sort of sentiment around the constitution itself and how how precious it is to Australian democracy, but but there's not a lot of truth in that. Like the constitution was written by the architects of the White Australia policy on the understanding of terra nullius, and it is already divided by race in three different parts. So I think that they're relying on community ignorance in order to push what we're seeing the mainstream no campaign to to be successful. And that's a real problem. Um, people react, or we've noticed in federal elections, in state elections, um, fear is an incredible motivator of votes. And I feel like a lot of the no campaign is playing into community fears, as in do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people deserve this? There is, there is, uh, sorry, Celeste, there is something else though that's being traded upon, which I've not heard many people talk about, but I'll confess, concerns me greatly. Yes, you're right, there's the fear. We're all bound up with, if you don't know, vote no. If this is confusing to you, if we're not sure about what comes next, then better to err on the safe side. Which, by the way, but, is a standard trope of politics. Yes, this it is. This is the GST election. This is... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And it works. And I mean, espe it works. Especially so when what's being talked about is a permanent change. That's or right. at least a quasi-permanent change in the form of constitutional referendum. But I think the other thing that's been dredged up here 
is a kind of largely unexamined but almost visceral association of past Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bodies with corruption. So hearing people refer to this as a, as ATSIC, but just constitutionally enshrined. And then there's the association of ATSIC with its ignominious demise, with its final bipartisan delegislation. Without a real reckoning of what it is that ATSIC was, the degrees to which its decision-making capacities and political responsibilities were radically different from what the First Nations voice is proposed to be, but also a reckoning with the total legacy of ATSIC, which can hardly be dismissed or kind of waved away with the flag of it being corrupt. And I think this then, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up before, one of the tensions with this entire debate is that the political status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples within federal politics is essentially being put to discussion by non-Indigenous Australians, which means the case that is being put is a case for non-Indigenous people, which means it's designed to allay fears, to undersell its ambitions, which then raises at the same time the concerns of many First Nations people that this is going to not have the power to do what it needs to do or that it's not going to end up leading. In other words, the very thing that's meant to placate one group of voters is to some extent preying on the worst fear of another group of voters. It just seems to be an impossible double bind that you can't find, I think, outside of this kind of referendum politics. Yeah, look, it's I, I don't even know what to say to that. There is the double bind. There is the the playing on the fear. Um, if I was to look at ATSIC, for example, and and what that meant, what that did actually mean was some sort of degree of self-determined decision-making. Mm, um, right. You know, we did have democratic elections attached to ATSIC. In fact, I'm old enough to have voted in a couple of the last ones. That's not remotely what we're looking at with regards to the voice. It states very plainly in in the proposed constitutional amendment that the voice may make representations to the government and the executive with regards to matters that they deem necessary and the government may listen to them. You know, ATSIC ATSIC was delivering programs. ATSIC was building communities and there has been this continual idea that ATSIC was a complete failure um, that's been allowed to play out there in the public. But it's not really the truth of the matter. It was, it became a political football for governments. Mm. So we're seeing recycling of that. I think, you know, we're also seeing recycling of an, of a whole number of other things. I remember the news coverage a couple of, was it a couple of weeks ago where they were talking um, about how how non-Indigenous people would have to pay to go to the beach um, because of a mm. video that had hit the hit the media and was being amped up by politicians such as Pauline Hanson. You know, that sort of stuff straight out of the playbook that we saw post the Mabo decision. It's very native title. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Scott, what I don't understand from this is what you would have liked to have seen. There is a compelling case, it seems to me, for if there is going to be this kind of body that it should not be reduced to being a political football. I understand and therefore the must case be constitutional for it being constitutionally enshrined. Yep. The thing about and look this is what I think the zero sum nature of referendum politics understands even if it understands it in a kind of demonic way. There is something almost sacred about these kind of referenda. The stakes are incredibly high and that ends up amping up the character, the nature of the debate and therefore the claims that are made or the fears that are played down. Okay. It also I, I, means you can't complain about the fact that this gets put to all of the Australian people. That's right. But what it should do, and I guess this is fundamentally what I'm concerned about. And, and I mean, we could say that this isn't a problem with referendum politics generally, but this is a problem with referendum politics in 2023. We may well say that. What I would suggest is that the question at hand the people who are caught in the crossfire and the heightened nature of referendum deliberation itself should give us all the overwhelming feeling that we are tiptoeing on sacred ground. And that should, 
even in the rough and tumble of political deliberation, that should temper the kind of claims, the kind of accusations, the fears that are stoked and the promises that are held out. That should temper those on all fronts because the worst of all outcomes, I think, is whatever you regard success in this particular referendum being, the worst of all outcomes, I think, is a fractured, broken political community that's left in its wake. And I think when it comes down to it, watching the way, and now that we're staying on the precipice of the official campaign, I'm worried desperately of a political community effectively being broken as the result of a referendum. Celeste, do you think the way the referendum campaign, such as it is, has played out, was in any way avoidable or inevitable? I think it was avoidable. If I'm to talk about where my own stance is and why I'd be an undecided vote and and still thinking that way, even though we have a date, um, we're moving closer towards it, the debate is going to be amping up. Um, it's because, quite frankly, I did see the order of business as, as put out by the Uluru Statement to be the wrong order of business. I think that Australia has an awful lot to gain from engaging in a truth-telling process first. You're both talking about things such as such as rights agendas. So the difference between the marriage plebiscite and then um, and then this voice referendum. To protect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights, we would be looking at treaty negotiations because that's how we lay out what those rights should be, how they should be protected and what sort of mechanisms we can have in place in order to hold governments accountable. So if I had my way, the voice would have come out of treaty negotiations um, and we would have protected the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people first after Australia had actually been exposed to a massive truth-telling exercise because part of my biggest frustration and why I say that fear seems to be winning the day is that a lot of the campaign um, to date has been playing on general public ignorance of political mechanisms, um, the voice itself, the constitution itself, and the history, you know, where things have come from, what's worked, what hasn't worked in the past. Um, And I'd say that most of Australia isn't incredibly knowledgeable. There's a lot that we need to still bring to the forefront. But if they're not knowledgeable about a constitution they've had for, what are we up to, 123 years? Yeah. 22 years? (laughs) What makes you think they're going to suddenly become more knowledgeable in such a way and to such an extent as to support a treaty process? Well, that is part of the truth-telling agenda. Mm. Like, I still frequently point out the idea of terra nullius and the fact that um, this land was claimed by the erasure of several millennia worth of history and and culture, um, land belonging to no one. So the constitution is a reinforcement of the, the taking over of a foreign power on this land without negotiation and with that erasure in place. But that truth, as you've put it, has been told many times for decades now. But how's it actually been reconciled within the Australian? No, maybe it hasn't, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm coming to the informational aspect of what you're saying, the idea that there are all these Australians out there who don't know anything about any of this and they don't even know anything about the Constitution. Well, if that's true, is a truth-telling process over a relatively short period of time, certainly a lot shorter than 122 years, going to change that? So if you reverse the order, what actually changes Don't you at some point run into the problem that you need a whole of country democratic in the sense of people voting or democratic assent to some, the creation of some kind of institution and that at any point you ask for that, it's going to be difficult and you'll probably run into the kind of thing we're running into. Yes and no, because I still, I still think, you know, we're having a lot of the same debates and discussions that we have been with regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights and politics for decades now. Um, we, we come around to the 26th of January every year and it's the same old discussions every year, but yet you ask the average Australian what happened on the 26th of January and they don't actually know beyond it being you know, an important day for Australian pride and those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are trying to take this away from the country. Well, to be fair, a lot of people don't see it that way. And and support for that date has been in decline structurally now for 
Don't they? I, I see a pushback every single there's year. There's always a pushback. <laughs> of course there's a pushback. But the polls tell you that it's moving in a particular direction. Yeah, yeah. But even then um, we see other discussions playing out like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are talking about changing the date of Australia Day, which misses a lot of the discussions that are happening in our communities. It's never been about changing the date. It's actually been about the truth of the date and the, the day of mourning protests that happened in 1938 was about acknowledging the mourning of peoples who had been invaded and displaced. So I do think, you know, things have shifted slightly since I was in formal education myself, but um, they haven't shifted enough. We still have generations of people being brought up with the very sort of white Australian, great Australian silence understanding of what this country is. And And you think a process of truth-telling will solve that? I think it'll put us in better position to do things like having a treaty and then having things like a voice installed in some sort of way without a community being completely torn apart every time. We're left, I I think, in a real paradox. And, And this for me is almost getting to the heart of the tragedy of this entire debate. For one side, there is a view of the voice that looks at it with a degree of suspicion. Okay, so you want us to vote for, you want us to give our assent to a representative body within federal politics that has tended to treat First Nations representative bodies with a fair degree of contempt, if not expediency. You want us to assent to that on the understanding that chances are a voice probably won't lead to anything much. In other words, it won't have enough power to do what no, is that, They're two very different promised. things. I, I agree, but just hang on. And then you've got another side that's saying the voice is presenting itself as moderate, as harmless, as not really ambitious at all. But this is really the thin end of the wedge that's going to lead to a radical changing of this, uh, the imposition of fees on Australian beaches, and then you blink and before you know it, it's all going to turn into treaty. In other words, on the one hand, there's a fear that it will fundamentally be powerless and that it's going to be exceeding simply too much to federal politics when federal politics has delivered seemingly so little over the last let's just say the last 50 years. And then the other side is it looks moderate, but in fact, it's insidious. And the fact that the same thing can be viewed from two such radically different perspectives and have attributed to it either the same insidiousness or the same fear of powerlessness. There's something about that that, I, again, as we get closer and closer to the referendum, I just fear that that's only going to intensify. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, look, if I was to frame it, the reality of the situation, and that I think that that's a good overview of what's going on, but I think the reality of the situation is that this is a highly conservative reform by its yes, very it design, yes, because it it's, it's an amendment in the Constitution as it stands. You know, it's been set out as to what it will do and what it won't do, and the fact that the Parliament has the right to decide on the structure of what this voice is. Yeah, it's not actually upsetting any massive status quos. In fact, it's reinforcing them because it is Mm. reinforcing the Constitution as the key founding document of this country. To see how that's been playing out, um, to see things like Albanese reiterate over and over again that there will be no power of veto, um, it does say an awful lot as to, again, the politics of fear, what people are um, drawing on, you know, oh, we're giving them rights, but we're not giving them any real rights, is what the message has been. And, and, and the very fact that that has to be reiterated the number of times that it does says something about the fears that are trying to be allayed. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think that's true, but I would be reluctant to categorise this all around fear. Hmm. This is a point that I made a long time ago on this show. I don't think it was very well received in that show, and it probably won't be well received in this one. But there are a lot of Australians, admittedly probably not many Indigenous ones, for whom the Constitution and the nation that it's built is a successful one. And there are lots of examples of constitutions around the world that are not, in which the nation gets tied up in all kinds of intractable, almost existential arguments. The United States, I think, is an example of this. Hmm. 
And so there's fear on the one hand, which I think gets shown up in the, you know, the, the disinformation stuff or the misinformation, whatever you want to call it, you know, that you'll have to pay for to go to the beach stuff. And then on the other hand, I think there is just a pretty classic conservatism, which is not built on fear so much as it's built on a desire to conserve what has been successful. They may even want to amend it so that it can be improved in some way. And they may or may not see the voice as part of that, but they don't want to do that at the expense of disturbing the underlying structure. That's not fear in the sense that we're talking about it. That's not the politics of fear. That's just a conservative politics, which has been part of Australia for a long time and actually is probably part of every society that feels that it has something to preserve. I just Can think I if we you ignore though, that, you will go wrong. Mm. <laughs> right? You, you will pitch to an electorate that will not accept what you're offering and it'll end up becoming a culture war. I, I just don't see an alternative to that. In, in fact, in some ways, that might be what we're witnessing. Mm. I want to leave the last word to you, Celeste, but can I just ask you both? I think f- for many people, that's broadly correct. In other words, that it's not so much fear, but a, a kind of reflection of value. How do you explain, though, when this is such a modest, moderate accession, a desire to be included within the Constitution that's being proposed? How do you then, what particular affect, what political sentiments do you ascribe then the ability to see that as the thin end of the wedge that will end up undermining life as we know it? In other words, as part of a kind of insidious plot or threat to take away what is most precious to us. That's not just value. That's not just a sense of the preciousness of an institution. There's something else going on there. Yeah. I, if I was to put down an idea as to why that, that is a successful community understanding. I don't know what to, I don't know how to frame that, but I will say that I think a lot of that comes from Australia's still lack of ability to reconcile with its past and its present, with its ongoing sort of legacy of colonisation and the impacts, the very real impacts that they have had on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, To go delving into that and unpacking it, um, by its very nature, actually questions the um, integrity of items such as the Constitution, which is why I think people get protective of it, even if they don't know what's actually in it. It says to me that Australia has a long way to go in rectifying its legacy. Sadly, Celeste, we don't have a long way to go because we're out of time. Uh, Would that we did, because there's clearly a lot more to talk about. It's been great to have you on the show with with Scott and me, at least. At least we finally got that opportunity. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Celeste Little, a Runder woman living in Melbourne, union organiser, social commentator, freelance writer, activist, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week for our Not Quite a Book Club. Just a reminder to go do your homework. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.